We're all familiar with the phrase reduce, reuse, recycle. But for some people, that goes far beyond just separating their trash into paper, plastic, and glass. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this week's show, we're talking with people who keep New York City's history and character alive by turning the old into something new, like the artist who turns newspaper bins into aquariums. What I did is basically just give an interpretation of what the magazine was talking about. Artist Carlos Sampietro coming up on Cityscape. I'm glad you're with us. First this morning, one man's discarded plywood is another man's musical treasure. I recently paid a visit to a guitar maker in Manhattan's West Village who makes instruments from what he calls the bones of old New York City. My name is Rick Kelly, and uh, this is my store. I build guitars here on Carmine Street. It's Carmine Street Guitars. I guess right now we're in your workshop, right? That's right. This is the workshop. Is this where the magic happens, where you make these guitars? This is where it all happens, right here. How long have you been making guitars out of reclaimed wood? Uh, I guess it's about five years now. Actually, I've always kind of, since the late 60s, early 70s, I've been making guitars from old wood uh, and reclaimed wood. I didn't consider it reclaimed lumber at the time, but the last five years has been the New York City building wood that I've been using, what I call the bones of old New York. It's actually the timbers that frame out these old 1800s buildings here in the city. What inspired you to look to that wood to make guitars? Uh, it was free. <laughs> you know, the wood uh, it just gets thrown out. It gets replaced with engineered lumber that they use to reconstruct the building, so the contractors just get rid of it. And uh, fortunately for me, I reclaim it and use it and build the guitars from it. Where did you get the wood for that very first guitar that you made from reclaimed wood here in New York City? Yeah, a friend of mine is actually Jim Jarmusch, the filmmaker's neighbor, and uh, he knew Jim was replacing the timbers in the upper loft and uh, asked me if I would be interested in the wood, and I said, great. And Jim had already come in and bought a couple of guitars for me, so he knew what I was doing and, and was, was happy to and wound up buying two of the guitars that I made for him from his timbers that were in his bedroom. <laughs> you also got wood from the Chelsea Hotel, right? Yeah, I got wood from the Chelsea Hotel. Uh, a, friend, a neighbor happened to live right next door. And they were throwing timbers out while they were doing the renovations of that building and uh, scored some of that uh, wood for me. It's, uh, you know, same thing, 1850. I think the building's an 1853 building, and the wood was uh, some old dug fir that they used in the construction. How appropriate, though, to make guitars from wood from the Chelsea Hotel, considering how many musicians have stayed there? Yeah, it was uh, it was really a, a bonus. And, and I've also gotten wood from Chumley's, an old speakeasy bar where a lot of musicians uh, and playwrights and songwriters and poets used to hang out over on Bedford Street when it was uh, around. It goes way back. That's a pre-Civil War building. And, uh, yeah, the Chelsea Hotel obviously has housed so many. In fact, I made just recently some guitars for Lou Reed and Bob Dylan, who both used to, you know, frequent the place. And uh, they were kind of insistent that the neck wood was from the Chelsea Hotel. Are you thinking about the stories behind that wood? If that wood could talk, what would it say kind of thing? Oh, yeah, we've always said that around here at the shop, especially in the workshop back here. Like, this actual room was a speakeasy. This building was a speakeasy, and we always wonder what uh, if these walls could talk or these timbers, what they've seen, especially the Bowery wood. You know, that's gone through all the 
different additions of um, you know the city changing and, and everything from the Bowery Bums to uh, the old Lincoln Hotel, which is where some of the first batch of wood I got came from. You know, flop houses and speakeasies, and it's pretty pretty fascinating that down this end of town. The historic end of town really goes back to the 1600s. Are you walking around town looking for demolitions? How do you go about finding the wood outside of people calling you and letting you know that it's there? Yeah, both. I actually kind of always have my eyes open. In fact, there's a building right around the corner where I've been stopping almost every other day, finding out when they're ready. And and, uh, he's given me all the wood from that building, which is an 1850s building. Mark Sebastian, John Sebastian's brother, lives over on Washington Muse. He called me yesterday and said there's more wood. I had made him a guitar from his house that was uh, on Washington Muse. Actually, those were old, um, they were old uh, carriage houses and, and stables that go back to the 1800s. And, and he grew up in that house, which was an old stable. And uh, there's more wood coming from there. He put it in his house, and he's going away for a week. Next week, I'm going to go get the rest of it from him increases the value of a guitar, doesn't it? Yeah, I've got a guy that just uh, grew up in a house on Eldridge Street, and uh, he got some wood from a renovation that was going on in the house he grew up in, and I'm making a guitar from him from that. So it's uh, yeah, it has a lot of historic significance for a lot of people, you know, that they can relate to this as being actually part of the old New York City, and, and it's been around in the city longer than most of them have. And it just is special in a way to be able to use that wood for that reason. Are there advantages to using this kind of reclaimed wood, though, to make a guitar in terms of the process? Yeah, I mean, the guitar wood is especially resonant. It's the same wood that you would use, actually, Stradivarius used pine in all his violins. It was the wood that the the soundboard was made from pine. So this is uh, Leo Fender made the original Telecasters. That's pretty much the kind of guitar I make is a Telecaster. And he made the first 10 guitars from pine because he was already making amplifier cabinets from that wood. So it was just convenient to use that same wood. How long does it take to make a guitar? Well, right now I'm doing about four a month. Uh, I've got a lot of orders. I'm over a year back ordered on orders. So I'm cranking them out as fast as I can. Rick, thanks so much for your All time. Right. Thanks a lot. Rick Kelly owns Carmine Street Guitars in the West Village. He's online at kellyguitars.com. Kelly's not the only one in town who sees value in old lumber. Alan Solomon and Klaus Armster have made a business out of it. Their company, called Sawkill, gives vintage wood new life. Alan is with us in the studio this morning, and Klaus joins us on the phone. Alan, good morning. Good morning. Klaus, good morning to you. Good morning. You guys look for treasure amidst the ruins. Is that a fair way to describe what you do? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, we're uh, we're uh, constantly picking up old uh, wood from from demolition sites, and yeah, we're uh, I guess it is a treasure. Al, how do you view what you do? Yeah, similarly, there's a lot that comes out of a demolished building, and there's a lot of it that has value, including the metal and and the brick. But the wood also has a unique value, and it's one of the items that doesn't get so processed that you lose that uh, connection to the history of the building. Is reclaimed wood any better than freshly cut for any reason? Yeah, I would say the reclaimed wood has has several advantages over over new material from a physical standpoint as far as the properties of it. I mean, it tends to be older growth, denser grain material, and and therefore it's it's more stable. But more importantly, uh, the aesthetic uh, properties of the wood as far as it's picked up some it's oxidized and, and weathered or, or otherwise uh, changed its appearance from being so old. And that's added to the aesthetic 
quality of the wood, and that, that's what a lot of people are after. Al, where do you get your wood from? The wood here in the city comes from practically any building that was constructed before 1920 was framed with lumber. And prior to 1900, it was generally old-growth lumber. And uh, this was a quality of wood that came from old-growth trees in the country. Up until that point, I think the country cut down about a trillion board feet of this material, and then it slowly dwindled. And right now, the only way to to get old-growth wood is is through the demolition process. So in that sense, New York City is potentially the largest old-growth forest in the country that can still be harvested. Buildings are coming down all the time here in New York City. Yeah, they say sometimes there's more buildings coming down in New York than some cities have standing. It's constant. How do you go about seeking out this wood, though? How do you know when a building is coming down and you can swoop in and collect this wood? Uh, Well, we work with contractors and uh, developers and demolition companies to try to stay in touch with uh, the demolition process and to canvas and, you know, know what's happening, you know, in that way. What are among the most interesting places you've gotten reclaimed wood from? Well, there's such a range. It's hard to say one's more interesting than another because sometimes you walk up to, you know, a building that looks like an ordinary tenement and you start digging into the history and all of a sudden, you know, all sorts of things surfaced. Uh, That happened with the first building that I uh, sort of was introduced to this business through down on Pearl Street in lower Manhattan. 211 Pearl Street, right? Yeah, 211 Pearl Street. And uh, that appeared to be, you know, an everyday tenement, but it it turned out to be a building that was constructed 50 years before tenements even were built in the city. It was an old warehouse and stood at what what ended up being the heart of the city's early trade district. Now, I'm sure you guys can just go in and get this wood and resell it, but you actually take the time to research the buildings, huh? Yeah, we try to, to the extent we can, and time allows, we try to get a backstory uh, on the woods. And, you know, like I mentioned with buildings in New York, there's just layers of history almost anywhere you turn. Is that just out of a personal interest for you guys? Uh, What would you say, Klaus? I would say with you, yes. Uh, I would say uh, <laughs> primarily, uh, but I think a lot of our customers also really like to hear the story, and they appreciate that. And, uh, you know, when someone's buying and, and selecting this material, it's it's not always clear what sort of interests them, but uh, but it kind of all comes together as a big package. So to some people, it's the fact that it's reclaimed. They like the green aspect of that, the recycling aspect, so to speak, and some people, it's the it's just the aesthetic itself. They like seeing the history in the wood and seeing what it looks like. And then with other people, they're trying to do a restoration. They're trying to get something that's really old and, and has these, these properties that we were speaking of uh, a few minutes ago. And then and then to some people, it's the, it's the actual story of the wood. If someone hears wood came from Coney Island or, or this Pearl Street building or, or a school somewhere, a lot of times that has a... Um, uh, it allows them to make a connection to the wood that they they just uh, makes them appreciate it more. And so yeah, so it is a um, it is a personal interest uh, to some extent. I mean, I think Alan and I are both collectors in a way, but I think uh, to a large extent, it's also part of this this sort of package of of what the material is. Does where the wood came from help to set the price at all? Does it affect the price in any way? When you say where it came from, you mean... Right, if it came from a speakeasy, is it worth any more than if it came from another building that didn't have a interesting history? I don't 
think so. I don't. I don't think that adds to the value per se, or at least I don't try to incorporate. I don't think we try and incorporate that into the price. But I think maybe it makes it in some instances easier to sell. I mean, for instance, we have this this ePay and these tropical hardwoods that came from Coney Island, and we also got some of that material from Atlantic City and from Far Rockaway, and. You know, but when we're talking about the material, people seem to attach themselves more to the Coney Island wood, and they'll they'll uh, hear a story about that. So, uh, or tell a story um, about when they were younger, or something along those lines. So, in that respect, I think it makes it easier to sell. But I don't think we say, well, this material is more expensive because it came from this project. So, I don't think we we consciously try and do that. The the price is primarily set more on sort of the quality of the wood itself and then, uh, you know, the, the value add that we do to it. Now, do you have to pay contractors for the wood or are you just doing them a favor by hauling it away? It depends on the type of wood in the project and, you know, how much work is, goes into acquiring the wood or how much wood is involved. It, it really varies. These days, though, I think, um, I mean, years ago, I think it was more likely that you were able to get wood at no charge. But I think these days... Most of the time, I think we're we're having to pay for wood, and in some instances, you know, a, a truckload of wood can be worth fifteen thousand dollars, you know, right off the job site. But I think years ago, it was it was much more of a just you know any way they could get rid of it. But now it's it, now it just depends on the situation. Yeah, the years wood. ago in New York, a lot of this wood was going into um, sewage lining and uh, excavation sites, and then you know slowly the value of antique woods kind of uh, emerged. Now, once again, your company is called Sawkill, right? That's right. Is that name in any way a reflection of the city's history? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the woods themselves are a reflection of the city's history, and and salvaging them and transforming them are are in many ways a reflection of New York City. But Sawkill itself actually is a Dutch word that means Sawmill Creek, and it was the site of the first sawmill um, on Manhattan Island in the 1620s. So it picks up on that heritage of still harvesting old-growth woods uh, in the city, except, you know, not from the enormous old-growth trees that were once here, but it's 19th-century buildings. Who came up with that name? I found it at the New York Historical Society on an old map, and uh, me and Klaus discussed it, and we sort of grappled with the potentially edgy quality of the name and whether there was you know, a marketing pitfall <laughs> in that direction. But um, we thought it was so resonant um, with the history and what was doing and also in this idea of, uh, in many ways, New York City is looking back now in, in as much as ever in, in looking forward environmentally and other ways. So it, it just seemed to fit. Let's talk about the 12 by 12 design contest that you guys are organizing. What's that all about? Uh, well, it was um, it started about five years ago when a small group of us met and we wanted to put together an exhibition of um, woods from historic buildings in the city. So it involves uh, we've we have wood from twelve different historic buildings, and it's been a juried selection of twelve contemporary designers who you know produce a furniture piece uh, from those lots of woods. It was named by uh, a woman, Kimberly Oliver, and uh, we just sort of went with that. Uh, it's a benefit for the organization Brooklyn Woods that does job training and youth education in the city centered on woodworking. And um, we got a great response to it. 
from designers and um you know unfortunately we were only able to involve 12 at this point but um it looks to be you know you know a strong group of furniture makers and designers 12 by 12 12 designers 12 historic properties 12 woods 12 woods <laughs> 12 species of oh, woods 12 species of woods it's interesting i mean the woods in new york city uh, most of the wood that is reclaimed out of New York City is, is one of three or four different species. So you do see a lot of uh, southern yellow pine, and the quality of that can vary significantly, but that's, that's uh, the old-growth longleaf heart pine typically. And then uh, another species is dug fir, and a third species would be spruce. And I guess if there were a fourth, it would probably be uh, white pine. And you can almost date the building to some extent based on the species. So if you get a very old building pre-Civil War, that's likely to be, you know, white pine. Well, spruce could be any time throughout the entire period. But, you know, pre-Civil War, uh, you'd see a lot of white pine. And then after the Civil War, the railways were you know, working better from north to south. And so you see a lot of heart pine from around 1880 till around 1910. By 1910, they'd cut that, and they began using Douglas fir. And so, like I said, you could see spruce at any point in that. But those were kind of the three primary woods that you, you um, or four primary woods that you'll see. So those make up a good portion of the um, of the woods that we're incorporating. Uh, those are four of the species. We, we also occasionally get other species. So we've gotten cypress from an old distillery. We got some cypress and some white oak. We got some redwood from all those water towers that you see on the rooftops. Mm-hmm. There's, they can be um, redwood or cedar or other uh, decay-resistant woods. And so occasionally you see some of these other species, but um, those are the, I think those are all the species we have in the, in the exhibit. I, I guess there's also the tropical hardwoods from the Coney Island, and that would be, um, that would be the Ipe and or Greenheart, uh, which you see from there. So, so yeah, so those, I think, uh, does that cover it, Alan? I think so, yeah. Yeah. What do you expect that these designers will make? Tables, chairs, that kind of thing? Yeah, the design constraints call for a furniture piece, so it's pretty open-ended. Uh, one person, I think, is making a seesaw, and another person's making a drafting table. Chairs, one person's making a trunk. There's a uh, building from the Atlanta Yard site uh, that's being developed in Brooklyn that was a homeless shelter, so I think um, their piece maybe references this kind of, you know, transient quality, you know, that was part of the building's history, so... When and where will these designs be showcased? These uh, uh, The event is planned for Spring Design Week in May, third week of May, and uh, we're still uh, firming up a venue space. Uh, it's probably going to be either in the Meatpacking District, uh, NoHo, satellite areas. But, but yeah, it just uh, involves taking the uh, fabric and material in New York and uh, creating something new out of it. And so we're thankful, you know, that... You know, there are enough high-caliber designers that are participating. Now, Al, you not only work with reclaimed wood, you've also made yarmulkes out of tires. Is that right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What um, sparked that idea? Um, well, it was just uh, part of a series of items, you know, made from salvaged items over the years. Um, we did manhole cover tables at one time, and... You know, there were other items made out of tires. Uh, it must have been around the Jewish holidays, and I got <laughs> inspired to make a yarmulke. Not sure if you want to be out in the sun with that on your head. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
it was certainly durable, so maybe it had qualities. It. Well, you're sometimes surprised of the ideas this guy comes up with. Uh, yeah, oh, he comes up with some good ones, and and uh, you know, it's. I mean, you kind of need that a little bit because, you know, you can say one man's trash is another man's treasure, but sometimes one man's trash is another man's trash as well. But <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, sometimes you need someone like Alan to to uh you know it might be 10 people's trash but one man's treasure and and uh and you know he 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 uh certainly has a way to of uh of looking at things uh, differently and you really need that because you know nowadays uh there's a lot of people who appreciate reclaimed wood but even there there's a great divergence between some of the different woods and so some woods are highly sought after and other reclaimed woods are still you know treated with a uh, a fair amount of of disdain or at least a, a lack of appreciation so um you know you find someone like alan who really um tries to you know take even the things that um you know all of the wood and try to figure out a way to make it work and and i think that's important how many splinters show, show me your hands <laughs> <laughs> not too many <laughs> not too many how about you klaus uh, the yeah, they, I, I have a few now, but I, I uh, thankfully I, I work with a number of guys who, who kind of uh, do a lot of the heavy lifting nowadays. I, I worked three years as the only employee, but now now we have uh, about ten, so it's so I do less and less of that now. Al, thanks so George. much for coming in. Thank you, George, and Klaus. Thank you. Thank you as well. Alan Solomon and Klaus Armster own Sawkill, a company that gives vintage wood new life. Information about the 12 by 12 furniture design competition they're involved with is online at 12by12nyc.com. Cycling on the recycle cycle, cycling on the recycle cycle. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boraki. This morning we're talking with people who find new uses for pieces of New York City that may otherwise end up in a landfill. Artist Carlos San Pietro turns what he finds on the street into household furniture. He's with us on the phone this morning. Carlo, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for calling me. <laughs> now, we're reaching you in Brazil this morning, right? Yeah, this morning I woke up in the beautiful island of Florianopolis, and I'm working uh, for a new my uh, video installation that hopefully will be ready in a couple of months. Well, we wish you good luck with that, but we're here this morning to talk about your work repurposing what you find on New York City streets. You have a line of furniture and accessories that you call the street is in the house, right? Yeah, correct. Is been living like almost 10 years in New York and uh, observing everything is around me. He gave me like a very uh, good point about uh, what is like uh, is, is left in the, in the street and no one noticed and uh, the beauty that these things have. Such as what? What have you found on the streets? Well, the, 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 the biggest part of the collection, they are the newspaper box that are best. I mean, most of them are, they are abandoned and very dirty. And the other thing is that the abandoned police barricade left it on the side of the street, or the the cones that like they divide the traffic, especially like outside of the William, Williamsburg Bridge, they are very visible. But every time they do like a work in the street, we have this kind of like huge uh, barricade, um, plastic one, the orange one. Let's start with the newspaper boxes. What have you turned newspaper boxes into? 
the newspaper boxing is a, is a piece of New York. It's something that talks about the community of New York. It's something about talking what's happening in New York. So it's really like a cultural like a, a source for everyone. And what I did basically is just give an interpretation of what the magazine was talking about. So, for example, like uh, on the on the Village Voice, I find an article that talks about that the culture of wine in New York is getting better and better and better. So the idea about doing a wine cooler fully functional, it was inspired by an article that I find in the Village Voice. So you turn a newspaper box into a wine cooler? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, a wine cooler, a fully functional wine cooler. Another one it will be, for example, the aquarium out of the, the, the New York parents. It's basically talk about uh, what the family need in New York, uh, what is the kids they need it. And that's why I get an idea about, like, uh, if I was a kid, probably, like, we don't have so many animals or so many, like, green space in New York, it would be nice to have an aquarium inside there. And so I, I realized, like, using uh, all the, all the box without uh, add any other element, I realized a fully functional aquarium. Or a general one that is, uh, if you have a kitchen in New York City and you don't have the space for the washing machine, you cannot install it. So I create one that you have a washing machine, fully functional, that you can leave in the middle of the living room and using as a washing machine. So you turned, <laughs> uh, hold on, you turned, you turned an old newspaper box into a fully functioning washing machine? Yeah. Is uh, in the in the top there is the racket to dry the the, the 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 dishes that you wash it, and in the bottom side and the other hole there is basically the, the fully functional like uh, washing machine. Oh, so it's a dishwasher. And yeah, dishwasher. Yeah. Okay, not for clothing, yeah. but for dishes. Yeah, for dishes. Yeah. Gotcha. And basically, all of these like uh, they have this double function that like is. Uh, is a is a fluorescent light. So like uh depend of the color of the plastic, the village voice is red, so it's going together with wine. Another one is green, another one is yellow. And each of that like there is a light inside that they they're gonna bloom all your room like with the color of the plastic. Carlo, you found a pretty unique use for a plastic traffic barrel. Tell us what you turned that into. Yeah, so the plastic uh once once I did like with the uh everything starts from the police barricade. From the police bike, it's a symbol that you cannot go in very close or like it's used to, to separate people. I turn it into a table that basically some, is, a, is a symbol that we like to bring people together and make like a talking about it. After that, I need to say, okay, well, probably I should go ahead with this line and find like how can I do a chair with the same symbol. So I saw this, this barricade, this red uh, um, uh, orange or a round barricade in the street, and I thought about it, this is a symbol of work and uh, danger. So it can be turned into a symbol of rest and comfort. So I studied, I did them a little mock-up, and I tried to find it out how can this thing can become a chair. So in the end I made it. When it's closed, it's like, it looks like as it is in the street, and if you turn upside down one of the pieces of the top, it become like a chair. Uh, I call it a clutch chair, like uh, the the French when they open up the the oh, every, every part of the food, they lift they lift it up a piece, and then you can find the food inside. This one is the same technique. You lift it up a part, you slide it upside down, and it become a fully functional chair. You have a light inside, and you have like a power for your laptop if you if you are in the middle of the of your garden, you don't want to go back to the house to power your laptop for your telephone.
The police barricade table that you created, that was a glass top table, right? Using the police barricade as the base, as the legs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carlo, this all started for you as a child, right? Back in Italy, in a small town in Italy, you worked for a local mission, and you went out and you collected trash, and you used it for other things. Yeah, it was a mission, like uh, in Italy, where you basically you go around the village, and you pick up the, the glass, you pick up the steel, you pick up the paper, and basically they collect it, and they sell it as a, as a weight. So at the time, I was collecting all of that one, and I was making, like, you know... Most of the time, I was like uh, putting together a little motorbike or like uh, something that we have like a kind of a power, electricity, something that like it, it did help me like now, like uh, because it's not really my job or do the connection of the, uh, you know, electricity uh, or um, cutting the plastic using glue. But uh, growing up in a village, I learned so many little things that like after 30 years, basically, I've been using on my stuff, on my piece of art. And you do your work at a studio in the East Village, am I right? Yeah, basically, like, uh, I have a loft where I live, and, like, uh, I have a terrace, and I do most of the things, like, uh, in, in, the, in the loft or in the terrace. I need to carry everything up for three floors and then down, but uh, <laughs> I have the space up there for now. What's your website for people to check it out? Uh, my personal website is carlosampietro.com. Mm, the street is in the house.com is the other website specific for the for the project of the New York City. All right, Carlo, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for calling me. Carlo San Pietro is an environmentally concerned Italian artist based right here in New York City. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Don't forget, you can find past editions of Cityscape at wfuv.org slash cityscape. And while you're online, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Boracchi. My thanks to producer Julie Clark. Have a great weekend.